0: Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to back to John chapter 1. You remember last week we looked at, uh, in John uh, the dove, uh, and saw it in the Bible, how it's descending on Christ in John chapter 1, verse 32 and 34, and how we went through and went I would consider one of the great studies of the Bible of how that the uh, dove is a type of the Holy Spirit of God in the scriptures. I gave you a couple other clues on the eagle and, you know, birds in general. I showed you, which I think is one of the most revealing verses in the Bible. And you're going to find when you come through the Bible, you're going to find verses, good verses, verses that mean something to you personally. But then you're going to find verses that I call revealing verses. In other words, these particular verses will open up many, many things in the Bible. And Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, as that I gave you last week, is certainly one of those. It talks about how the God uses animals in the Bible. You know, he talked about, ask the beast, and they will teach thee the fowls of the air, and that they will tell you. He talks about the earth and the fish. You know, and fundamentally, he talks about, uh, you know, God's hand all through his creation and how that, as Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 tells us, we looked at this last week, how that everything in God's creation is not only there for the creation as we know it, but also serves as a model or an example to teach us many things and to show us and to teach us. And I showed you how that you, by key words, no Greek, no Hebrew, just key words, you'll always be able to unlock the Bible, and that is so, so crucial. And I showed you how that you, by keywords, you will always be able to, like I said, find out into the Bible. It's the pathway to the depth of the Bible. And uh, getting down deep through, as we talked about last week, God's unsearchable riches. Now, back in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 is is a favorite verse of mine. It always has been, and I I come across it many, many years ago. And it's a great personal verse, not only for me, but for all of you if you choose to claim it. And that's where he says that the secret things belong unto the Lord, our God. And that will be the things that God has in his book, very deep. But those things that are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. It basically is saying that, that there's some deep things in there that God doesn't give to everybody, but when he gives them to you and he gives them to me through our relationship with him, God giving you the deep things of the Bible, the secret things that he will only do, like we talked about last week, that relationship with him, uh, as the book of Song of Solomon so clearly lays out, through the intimacy of having a relationship with him. You know, I talked last week and I took you through three key places in the Bible that really illustrate what God is doing down through the history of the Bible and, uh, you know, and and showing you uh, incredible things through the picture of a dove. First of all, we went to Song of Solomon and we talked about the concept of the eyes of a dove or dove's eyes. And, uh, you know, we simply Talk about that means you you and i see things as god sees them through the holy spirit of god we'll develop that a little bit more today then i took you to john chapter 15 <coughs> verses 9 through 13 and that offering that abraham made back there and uh there's a number of things how that the christ was separated from god on the cross but the birds were never separated the holy spirit of god he got never separated from that but more than that i showed you That's one of those great hidden places in the Bible that fundamentally shows you that you can never lose your salvation. You may get separated from God through fellowship, but you'll never get separated from the Holy Spirit of God in your salvation. And it's little things like that that makes the Bible the most incredible book the world has ever seen. Little things like that that even in the most minute details and the most obscure places in the Old Testament... God will never violate the principles that he sets down in the New Testament. If you can ever grasp that truth, it'll change everything about your life uh, as far as the Word of God is concerned. Then I took it to Genesis chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. And there we had a good study of of the dove versus the raven, how that Noah, type of God the Father, opened up the window of the ark, type of the universe, and sent out the raven first, that never came back. And then the dove goes through a process till she finds rest. And I showed you how that that was a picture from Genesis chapter 1 all the way up through the church age uh, where the Holy Spirit of God finally finds rest in believers. And you're going to find there's places like this in the Bible that, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, there's so much to that. And yet, uh, I was thinking this morning, uh, there's another place in Matthew chapter 21 that does almost the exact same thing, only it deals with more of the first coming of Christ. And it's, it's incredible uh, the way that God, through the stories in the Old Testament, they all follow the line of principles within the New Testament. You know, the picture of what God is doing all down through the Bible and how incredible uh, it, it really is. Now today, I know you're going to find this hard to believe because we've got a lot of verses to go today, but we're going to finish chapter 1. I know we have been edging our way through this, but you know today we're gonna we're gonna eat the big enchilada and we're gonna get the whole chapter done. But it all fits into the story that you know I really wanna I want to talk about today. And uh, we have another another great story here that we want to look at. Now again, this will be deep, but it's deep on a practical side it's deep on a on a on an inspirational side and there's a little difference between the depth of something that is doctrinally prophetically than something that is uh, in an inspirational application but it's it's going down a little ways today now we know from our first lesson that in the book of John God reveals Christ as the Son of God we know that each gospel has its own character quality of Christ, king, servant, son, and now in John the son of God. And we also understand that the book of John and we saw this the moment we in our first lesson on John was was written specifically for a purpose. And in John chapter 20 verse 31 he says this, that these are written talking about the book of John that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So now we talk about it that the gospel of John was written specifically for a man's salvation, to reveal Christ to him so he could be saved. And I showed you the contrast between the gospel of John, which is written to show us our salvation, and the epistle of 1 John, which is written after we get saved to show us our relationship through fellowship of knowing him. The two go hand in hand. And with that understanding, it's no great surprise that after Christ has now been declared in chapter 1, in in verse 7, verse 1 as the Son of God eternally. In verse 29, we now know that he is the Lamb of God, and in verse 29 also that take away the sin of the world. We saw in verse 9 how that he is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And then we saw in verse 41 that he is the true Christ. So given those things that we have found out about him up to this point, it's, it's, we now, in the last 17 verses of chapter one, it's no great surprise that we have a great study on winning people to Christ. And I know that, uh, you know, people go, when it comes to soul winning, everybody's got their ideas about it, you know, and, uh, uh, I'll be very frank with you, very honest with you. Most of it today in the latest in church period is wrong. And I'm talking about people who are saved people who have the right Bible. And, you know, soul winning, as we have learned from our study through Proverbs, is, is, is a key part. Proverbs 1130 says that the fruit of the righteous is as a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. When you come through the different aspect of a wise man in Proverbs, obviously now one of them that marks a wise man is that he wins people to Christ. And again, I'm going to say this is winning people to Christ, and I know it's hard to believe this, but you'll see by the time we're done here today, hopefully. Uh, you're going to see that it's the most unknown doctrine uh, of the modern-day Laodicean Church and Laodicean Christianity, and I'm not talking about the Neo Evangelicals. <clears throat> I'm talking about Baptists. I'm talking about Baptists who have this Baptist mindset about winning people to Christ, and we'll we'll see it today as we get into the greatest book in the Bible in the New Testament on on men being saved, the Gospel of John. Now, before we dive into this passage. I need to set the stage for a moment by looking at a few other places uh, and, and laying down the fundamentals of understanding of the issues of soul winning from the Bible. <clears throat> now, last week, our study on learning your Bible, I told you that you must do it God's way. Uh, God has a systematic theology, and I used the example that I have used years and years ago and continue to use about... You're going to St. Louis via I-70 or Chung Kung, China, and uh, but it doesn't stop there, because like everything else in the Bible, soul winning can't be left to the devices of a Baptist mindset. Soul winning cannot be something that some great preacher claims to be a great soul winner, or some Christian who claims that all he really cares about or she cares about is winning people to Christ. That doesn't impress me. Soul winning must follow a biblical protocol 2. And when I hear somebody say something that I'm doing this, or I want to do this, or this is what God's called me to do, I don't discount what you're saying, but I will definitely look at how you do it. Because you're either going to do it down I-70 God's way, just like learning your Bible, or you're going to do it through China, uh, which is where most of it is at today. And uh, most of God's people who claim to want to see people saved uh, really don't have a clue of how it really works. It's one of those conceptual things, just like your own salvation. I believe that, you know, most people that you're going to talk to, that we're all friends with, if if they would you would ask them if they're saved, they, I, I believe that. I believe there's a lot of Christians out there who, if I would talk to them, I would actually believe that they are truly saved. But when you ask them what really transpired, that changed about them from the millisecond before they were saved from a sinner to being saved, they couldn't tell you. They couldn't tell you the process. They understand it conceptually. and they live their Christian life with just giving no farther than that. And so their Christian life, even though they're saved, is, is pretty much hit or miss. It's, you know, it's whatever works today, and they have obviously have issues. Well, soul winning's the same way. A lot of people claim to be soul winners. A lot of God's people want to be soul winners. A lot of God's people that you know, they, they would tell you that they exist for one people, and that is to win people to Christ. And that's not a bad thing. That is a good thing. We should be there. My question is, <laughs> do you even understand the process from the Bible? Or are you one of those people who just use the terminology and follow what you think is the protocol? But yet, if you had to sit down and lay it out from the Bible, you would be like most Laodicean Christians today, and you would come up short. So, you know, they waste their time, they knock on doors, they preach sermons, they pass out tracts, but for the most part, very rarely do they ever see anybody saved, and they actually, and this has been fostered by the Baptist mindset. And believe me, I've been in it for oh, for fifty years. I've been in it to up to my eyeballs. And you know, some of you have too. Terry Job understands what I'm saying. Jim Darriskevich understands what I'm saying. You guys that have been out there on your own, you know how it is, man. I mean, there's people out there that actually think the more, you know, they actually think that the more that they they do all these things, the better opportunity to get somebody saved. But soul winning is deeper than that. And we have taken, like everything in the Bible, we have taken probably the most precious, intimate aspect of our Christian life after we get saved, the intimacy of Christ to bear fruit and made it a program. And... Uh, We approach soul winning like we did last week with our relationship with Christ. No real biblical understanding of it. We say we love God, but we couldn't go to the Bible and find out what God loves and what God hates. And actually, if we did, probably the things that God hates are the things that we love and vice versa. And that's why even in soul winning, and it's true of everything in the Christian life, the problem is there's no real biblical understanding. Now, I want to talk to you here before we get into this for a few things first of all i want to explain to you about soul winning that soul winning is not a program most baptist churches teach that it's a program most christians operate their soul winning venue uh like it is a program there's actually uh, preachers out there that uh will tell you that soul winning is a spirit, one of the spiritual gifts and not everybody has that spiritual gift so therefore you know, that negates people who uh, maybe uh, think that they don't want to win people to Christ. And so the pastor would tell them or they would tell you that, well, that's just not my spiritual gift. Well, let me tell you something. Winning people to Christ is not a spiritual gift. It isn't something that some of you have and others don't. It certainly isn't a program that we can corral into a set of verses or we can put into a book or we can, you know, put into some kind of format, and yet I've been grown up, you know, in all my Christian life with, in, in Baptist churches watching that format and watching that. Uh, and some of you were there with me. And you've seen it. I remember when we had a, a Curtis Hudson come and preach years ago. And he got up in the pulpit and said, if you don't win, I, I'll show you how to win six of the next ten people you meet to Christ. And he 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 was very adamant about it. That there's something wrong with you spiritually if you don't if you don't win out of the next ten people you meet, you don't win the six of them to Christ. And he was touted as one of the great great uh, soul winners. And he would go to churches. I've heard him preach several times. You know, over the years, he's dead now, but I've heard him preach, and he was a really good preacher. But everything he preached always came down to the winning people to Christ. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and they would put such hardcore techniques in place. I talked about John R. Rice, and John R. Rice was a, was a great saved man, and I have all the respect in the world for him. And he would talk about the fact that, uh, you know, that he cared about souls. And he actually preached more biblical soul-winning messages probably than the rest of them. He really did. But he came to the place in his life where the very book that he was telling people that they could get saved from... He didn't believe it was God's word anymore. Uh, Jack Hiles. Uh, Jack Hiles was—he's dead now too. He's a great pastor of, uh, from Hammond, Indiana, and he was known as Mister Soul Winner. I've heard Jack Hiles preach. Jack Hiles was a great preacher. He was a paratrooper in World War II. I think he was the 82nd Airborne. He was a—I mean—he was a good, hot, fire-up preacher. But it's one of those things where, and he held, they held their churches every year. And 5,000 people would go to the clinics on soul winning. And they would simply teach you sorcery, trickery. How that when you go to the knock on a door and you meet somebody that you went into Christ by even tricking them going to the door and knocking on the door and somebody saying, uh, uh, you know, would you, I'd like to have you get saved. And the guy says, well, I'm not interested in getting saved. And the guy would say, well, then could I pray with you? I mean, and the guy said, well, yeah, you can pray with me. And he says, well, you pray with me. And he says, you, you pray this. And he would lead that guy through the sinner's prayer. And then after the guy prayed it, he says, I see, you just got saved. Really? Is that, is that how we do it? Hey, I, I I've been there. I've seen all the soul winning conferences. I've seen all the soul winning techniques. I, I've seen you know uh, the books and the tapes that people bought uh, by the by the thousands of dollars with. That that thought that if you read so and so's book on finding a technique to be a great soul winner and you would win people to Christ, no. I, I'm not counting, the, I'm not, this is not a criticism of those people. I believe along with all of my heart they really, 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 really wanted to win people to Christ. That's why they bought the stuff. I blame the preachers. I blame the evangelist. Who took advantage of that and never really taught them anything biblically from the Bible that you don't need a program, you don't need a book. Other than that one, you don't need some kind of high-pressure technique. I've seen guys knock on a door, and witness to somebody that they just beat them senseless and just come at them from every angle to try to get that person saved. And many times, I'm just telling you, many times that person will just do it, so you'll get to get you off their back, and they go their way, and you go your way, and you're you're thinking, hey, "Well, I want another one. I want another one." No, you didn't. No, you didn't. i would learned a long time ago from my father and the Lord, Mel Sabaka, that soul winning, and it's, if you want a, a a practical process, soul winning is nothing more than just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. And it, it doesn't get any more complicated than that in its Lay out in this format. Now, having said that, we all have been ordained to win people to Christ. It's not a gift for some and not for others. It's not a program that you can choose. The Bible says in John fifteen, sixteen, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. That's it. You all have been ordained the day you got saved to bring forth fruit. And then he adds to that then your fruit shouldn't remain. Uh, and, and the next thing I, I want to tell you is that soul winning has to be done by the leading of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And this is where going back to Song of Solomon, your intimacy, like we talked about last week, uh, you know, uh, it's just like the same thing where, you know, if a couple gets married, and, and through their marriage, through the intimacy of that marriage, uh, in time, if they don't do something to keep that from happening, they're going to bear fruit. And it's true in your life and my life. Fruit bearing, winning people to Christ, doesn't come through a program. It doesn't come through some book. or what, It comes from a natural process, just like having kids, through an intimate relationship that you have with the Holy Spirit or God, but in time will produce fruit. I, I don't know of any place that uh, is more under, lay out an understanding of that than, than, than Acts chapter 8. And you know, to me, and I say this to you, I cannot, uh, and I know this is foreign to many of God's people, but I cannot, I cannot emphasize enough the importance in a believer's life of getting to the point where you can understand how and when the Holy Spirit of God will speak to you. I know the charismatics get it way out there in left field and the evangelicals, they're not even in the ball game. But Baptists are the same way and you know what? You can't use your own criteria. I've had people many, many times say, well, God's called me to do this and I know this is what he wants me to do and I, I just can't resist myself. I always ask, how did he call you? Did you get an email? I mean, did it on your cell phone? How did he call you? How do you know it was him? And when you start to get into that, honestly, I'm I'm sorry to say this. In most cases, it wasn't the Lord. It's something that you wanted to do that you just blamed it on God so you could do it. A lot of churches get started that way. And in Acts chapter 8, we have the wonderful story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You'll, you'll note that how the Holy Spirit of God, how he speaks to Philip. Those are things you want to stop and look at. You just don't want to, you know, and here again, I, I'm not interested in just preaching to you today. I want to show you within the preaching how you, how you do these things. And the first thing I ever saw when I read Acts chapter 8 is I saw, hey, here's a man where the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to him. And not only is he speaking to him, but he's guiding Philip to whatever he wants to do. And in this case, when a man to Christ, when I teach Acts chapter 8 as a process of soul winning, and it's an incredible chapter. I always talk about the fact that God has two, two aspects that He works with and through. One will be a prepared sinner, and God will get in a man and deal with a man and, and or a woman and really deal with where they're at and all that they're struggling with. He'll take the things in their life that are maybe going south or the things in their life that are, the, and, and just really deal with them on where they're at in, the, in an eternal sense. And I'm telling you right now, as we're sitting here, upstairs, downstairs, out in there, and, and on the web this morning, there's people that you work with, there's people in your life, there's people that God has put into your life, that God is preparing them as sinners, And then the second aspect that you have to God works with is not only does he have prepared sinners, but he has prepared servants. And that is found nowhere clearer than Acts chapter 8, where you have Philip, the prepared servant, and the Ethiopian eunuch, the prepared sinner. The problem today is God has got more prepared sinners than he's got prepared servants, Because we don't, one, care about winning people to Christ. Two, we don't have any intimate relationship with him. Even even us that say that we do really don't follow biblical protocol. You're flying by the seat of your pants. You're doing it your way. And then you're giving God the credit for it. And God says, I don't want anything to do with it. You're on your own, pal. And it's a thing where, uh, you know, you find it all the time. And right now, you ought to be preparing yourself that God can bring the two of you together, just like he did Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Bible says in verse 26, creeping. Philip is down in, he's down in Samaria, and he's having a, he's having a bonfire re, uh, revival down there. The Holy Spirit is smacked into the half-Jews and the half-Gentiles, and they're getting saved by the carloads. And he's the primary evangelist. And in verse 26, God says to him, the Holy Spirit of God says to him, Arise and go south and send him down to the desert. In verse 24, it says, The Spirit said, Go join thyself to that man's chariot. That might be verse 29, but he says, Go down there and join thyself to that man's chariot. In verse 39, After he's done the mission that God has called him to do, God, the Spirit of God, picks him up and takes him to the next adventure. And in verse 26, when, and this is a great thing, in verse 26, where the Spirit says, you know, go down the south, the Bible says that Philip ran. See, there has to be, through your intimate relationship with God, an excitement that God is going to use you. How many of us are going to get up tomorrow morning with that excitement excruciatingly flowing through us? We stayed up too late the night before, ate too much pizza before we went to bed. We're tired, we're groggy, we're grumpy. And if somebody would walk up to you and say, sing to you, this is the day the Lord's had made, you'd spew hot water out on them. But yet that's not Philip. Philip is in the middle of a campaign where... Thousands are coming to Christ and he's so in touch with the Holy Spirit of God that the Holy Spirit of God can pull him up and send him here and he never questions it. But he runs. Man. Now, along with that, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it tells us that there are three parts to soul winning. Now I know this is probably strange to all you soul winners out there. my only my only my only excuse is this is the Bible. In First Corinthians chapter three verse six, he tells us that there are three parts of soul winning. Paul says in that verse, "I have planted. Apollos has watered somebody else. But God gave the increase. There's somebody else. So Paul says, you know what? There's three parts to soul winning. There's a sowing to soul winning. There's a watering to soul winning after you sow. And then there comes a time when you reap. And sometimes you reap when somebody else is sowed and somebody else is watering. Sometimes, you know, you, you get to sow and you get to water and you get to reap. But I'm telling you. Now, here's the problem with God's people today. And this is where God's people, Christianity, is completely messed up. Because they have no real working relationship of the Holy Spirit of God. So, we wind up sowing when we should be reaping. We try to reap when we should be sowing or just watering. And we try to watering when we should be reaping. How, How do we know? How do we get in any given situation and know exactly what we should be doing in one of these three things. You see, most of God's people, you only know one thing. Win them, win them, win them, win them, win them. I have never met a time, and I know we've been in this for, none of us were alive in a Philadelphia church age in this heyday. But I've never seen a time in the history of Christianity where God's people have been so indifferent to the Holy Spirit of God leading in their life. For some reason, the majority of God's people just think they know more about life, their family, their kids, their own personal deal than God's Word does. And then wonder why we get into the messes we get into. Wonder why we have the problems that we have. How do you know when to do what? I'm sitting down with somebody and talking to somebody, and how do I know when I am to just sow and then later water? Or how do I know that somebody else has sowed and is watering and now it's my turn to reap? How do you know that? Well, you know that just like Philip did. You know that through your personal intimate. And I can't express express the word intimacy with the Holy Spirit of God. You develop that relationship that we talked about in the Book of Saga of Solomon, and he tells you exactly what to do. Just like he did with Philip in Acts chapter eight. You'll get into that situation and you'll be talking and witnessing to somebody, and just like somebody would say to something to me, the Lord, through the Spirit of God inside you will say, That's enough. You're done. And the reason, one of the reasons you know that is because you can feel, <laughs> here again, you can feel the spirit of God working through you, and then suddenly He just shuts it off, It's like turning a water spigot off. And if you know Bible, you know the way God works, and you know the principles involved. To me, that's a sign. Okay, I'm done now. And then there's been times when you're witness to somebody, and the Holy Spirit of God will just say, "Keep on going, pal. Keep on going." Hey, I've even asked myself, Lord, and I'm talking to this kid, I'm talking to the Lord, I said, Not, anytime you want me out of here, the Lord says, keep going, keep going, keep, keep going, just keep going. And he says, uh, and I say, well, how do you know? Well, he says, well, I'm going to open up the spigot even more. There are times he'll say, okay, that's enough. There are times you'll say, okay, go for it. And there's times you'll say, hey, Bob, just shut up. Acts chapter 8 is a great model of how the Holy Spirit of God gets the prepared servant to the prepared sinner and then tells him what to do. You'll notice there's preachers out there that every Sunday morning they give an invitation. And every Sunday morning, they'll usually preach a soul winning message and every Sunday morning they'll, they'll, they'll they'll give an invitation. I've had people that come to this church that says, well, how come you don't give an invitation every Sunday morning? And, I, and, I, and I'll be very honest with them. You know why? Because God doesn't tell me to give whatever money. I'm not going to do it because you want me to. And I'm not going to do it because you wasted your life in all these churches where that's all the guy knows how to do. Hey, I've been preaching up here, boy. And I'll tell you, I come down the end of that thing, and God just as clearly as somebody's saying something to me he said, go for it. There's somebody out there that needs it. Now, I have a great benefit that most pastors don't have. And that is You because the majority of you are, are really good soul winners and you have developed yourself with people and you know, you know you know, that sensitivity. So I don't have to feel the burden that I'm the only one here. And God uses that because there'll be times that I'm preaching and I know you're with somebody or working with somebody or you got your life into somebody and you've told me what you're doing with them. And so I, I don't feel that burden and God, God just lets me know that it's gonna, you're going to handle it. And that's part of us being laborers together. My confidence in you, your confidence in me, and our confidence together in the Holy Spirit of God. I trust you. I, I trust you to know what, you know that you know what you're doing. Hey, man, we've been together now, what, 16 years? I've trained most of you from day one or somewhere in the process. Are you kidding me? If there's one thing I do, and I, and I do it well, is that I get to know my people. I know where who's at and who's not. And it's a thing where that's, that's, that's where we're all at. Now, you know my position. Most people, I believe, claim, that claim to be saved in this Christian world are probably not really saved. And I, 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 I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that are saved, but you know as well as I do, the mark of a Laodicean church is to bring salvation into an easy format, when I say easy, I know salvation isn 't easy for about, but I mean without any doctrine to it, Undersaved people today have no understanding. I was at the post office last week, I was sending some books out to our lady down there that found a how to study the Bible book and i you know and I went into the post office and you know and I was lucky because nobody was there except one older gentleman and he was in front of me, and he was over at the counter, so you know I just sit there, put my box of books there, and wait for him and you know, I was in a little bit of a hurry. And, you know, the older I get on with things, the more impatient I get. I, you know, I just, I can't stand people who go through McDonald's drive-thru. Uh, and when they're supposed to move, they're on their phone doing a, uh, an email or whatever. I just, you'll get, you get the horn for that. You will. And, and don't try to say, well, I'll buy the guy's lunch behind me. I'm still ticked at gotcha? you. I'd much rather pull over and just give me the money. But anyway, he's in there, you know, and he's a, he's a sweet guy. And I, it was a morning, and I hadn't had my, all my coffee yet, so I'm just a little bit grumpy, I'll, I'll be honest with you. And I was a little bit of a hurry, because I had a lot to do. And uh, he's standing there, and he puts something and then he, he wants to buy some stamps. And you know, in my post office in Raytown, where all the pickup trucks have shotguns in their back windows, uh, where you stand at the counter, down in front is a glass case with all the different stamps in it. And he's looking at it, and he says, he, he's looking at the stamps and everything, and he can't decide which ones he wants. Hey, they're stamps, man. I don't care what it looks like, Troy. Does it get my letter to where I want it to go? Yeah, we'll that's right. And if I was really concerned, I would say, just a minute, ma'am. Aunt Edna, what kind of stamp would you like on your letter? Get the stamps. And he's down there looking at it, and he says, I want that one there, those there. That's got Jesus on them. He says, isn't that Jesus? <laughs> he pulls him out, and she says, uh, no, it's, it's uh, Sister Sabina or somebody like that. <laughs> and he says, close enough, I'll take them. And I thought, well, I was glad that he finally got his stance. But I thought to myself, well, that's just the way the world looks at it. If it's close to Christ and it's kind of like Christ, his very same words, they're all the same. Sister Savannah or whatever her name was, was the same as Christ in his mind. And that's the unsaved world. They'll see something that looks religious and they'll think it's all the same. And it's not all the same. And God takes tremendous amount of time to prepare a sinner. Why won't you allow him to take that same time to prepare you as a servant? Because there's a lot of guys out there and a lot of women out there just like that dear old guy who just... And I was going to witness to him and tell him that there was a difference, but by the time I got my stuff done, he was long gone, probably off, couldn't wait to get those letters out. Unsaved people have no understanding, but worse than that is God's people have no understanding. And where an unsaved person will do it through ignorance, we do it through indifference. Now, with that groundwork, let me, let's look at the text today, and I want to I show you seven things. Now that we understand the basis... I want to show you seven things about winning people to Christ from the book that God gave us to get men saved, the Gospel of John. And yet I just don't want to preach to you or give this to you. I want to show you. I want you to to look at how you do this. Now, he says in chapter 1, pick up in verse 35 to the end of the chapter. Now, like, hey, hey, and just do a little test. Uh, you just jot down there in your notes. Just, if you see something you think that I'm going to come back to, let's do a little test today. If you, see, if you see, if I read down through this, if you think something, well, he's going to hit on that. He's going he's to, mark it, just write it down and you can grade yourself at the end. I don't need to know the score. And uh, let's just see what we can do here. I mean, let's have some fun. It's Christmas. A couple of days from now, Jesus was born in a little stable. The three wise guys showed up, and the star was overhead. The Roman guy he didn't like it, and tried to get him killed, and all that stuff. And it uh, as 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 this is not in the Bible, but this tis the reason for the season. Too bad it in September, we'd be a little more accurate on the thing. Again, the next day after John stood, and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is, by interpretation, a stone. The day following, verse 43, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathaniel and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when when I was under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, art thou the son of God? Thou art the king of Israel. And Jesus said unto, unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God descending, uh, uh, descending upon the Son of Man. Father, we do thank you now and praise you for today we pray that we'll learn today not only the biblical format and protocol of winning people to Christ but also how that we can come to the scriptures and that you'll give us the deep things to show us today, how do we look for things? So the, as we go to a passage, what do we ask ourselves? What do? We, how do we approach, do we just read it like we're reading the newspaper? Or do we read it with a, uh, a, a, a an interest to try to see everything that's being said and then asking why? Help us today, Lord. We love you. We give this time to you now in Jesus' name's sake we ask it. Amen. Well, yeah, I hope you took your little test here. Let's just have a little fun here today. And again, follow along on how you detail out any passage of the Bible by simply remembering a few things of knowing what to look for. Now, there are a number of things here that we want to look at, seven in fact. So I don't know how many you got, but just kind of walk down through. them. Now, the first thing, I I, I don't know how you read the Bible, uh, what is the mindset behind it. I, I don't know what preparation you put into it. I don't know uh, if you have a set of things that you say, okay, when I read this, these five things are what I want to look for or look at or whatever. I don't know. But you would ever notice there's a difference here uh, in this chapter of the calling of the apostles than there is in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, he calls out all 10 by name. And then he sends them out. Here, you only have four names of four guys that he calls out. Now see, I look for things in the Bible like that. I read something like that, and the first thing that strikes me is Matthew chapter 10 where he he named all 12. And here he only called out four. Now you may think in your own little private world that uh, that's just the way it goes. But I'm telling you right now, there's something to that. Uh, And, uh, you know, if you want to be a really good Bible student, you got to, you got to develop some detective skills. You got to ask questions and you got to ask questions sometimes that lead to answers that just lead to more questions but you finally work it through. In Matthew chapter 10, all 12 are laid out, named and called, but here you only have four names called out. Now, why is that? I mean, when you read that, when I read that, did you catch that? Here, it's Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And these are the only four that he calls in this chapter. And it's a difference from Matthew chapter ten, where you're dealing with him as the king of Israel, and now, you know. Uh, uh, but we're dealing with a book here that is the greatest book on the planet to win men, bring men to Christ. So here's what you got. Now, this passage, as we're going to see, is about soul winning. And a little bit later on, or before, in Matthew chapter four, verse nineteen, he says to the disciples, "I'm going to make you fishers of men." So in the gospel for salvation and soul winning, we find that the first four men that he calls are all fishermen. Now that's instructive to me because that tells me that what I'm about to look at here And the greatest book in the New Testament that was written specifically to get people saved and God wants to make you and me fishers of men. So the first four guys he picks out of the 12 are all fishermen. Wow. See, a real soul winner is like a fisherman. Now, the second thing here. Let me talk to you a minute about fishing. And then our fishing for men and the parallels. Now, it goes without saying that in our church, and I I told Troy this this morning, and I also told Steve upstairs, we have some great fishermen in our church. I mean, there are guys in our church who really know how to fish. My dad, and Sharon, you'll remember this, my dad was an incredible fisherman, he loved to fish. He, he was a good fisherman. Back in the day, you know, with what he had, he used what he had, but, boy, he loved the fish. And I was never, I don't have the patience for it. I mean, if you're catching something, I, hunting's always was better for me because there's always something moving. You know, and if you don't see any rabbits or quail or pheasants, you can always shoot the farmer's cat if he gets out there. You can, you can, as long as you can make something happen and go boom. I'd love to fish with hand grenades. I think that would be the way to do it. Just get out there in a boat, pull that sucker, throw it out there far enough away, and <laughs> just pick all the fish up. That's against the law, but you know what? It's, it would be fun. I don't have the patience for it. But boy, I'll tell you what, we got some guys in this church that know how to fish. Remember the couple we're going to bring up from down south there, you're going to take them fishing. You know, you got your private little spot that nobody knows, and, you know, and you catch a lot of fish there. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, I, I, I've, seen, I've seen the pictures. You guys are way past the cane pole with a can of worms. They catch 40, 50, 100 fish in a, in a day. I've seen the pictures. But you see, here's their key. These guys not only have a tremendous amount of knowledge about fishing throughout the years, Experience. They have a lot of the high-tech equipment that makes it fishing a lot more fish-catchable. I mean, you can fish from shore, and many guys are good at it. But you know as well as I do, if you have a boat... You know, you can get places, the big lunker bass, they like the weed beds. Well, if you're on the shore, it's kind of hard to cast over the weed bed, but if you're in a boat, you can cast to the other side of it without getting tangled up, and boy, that's where them big suckers are living, I guess. <laughs> Fishermen now have sonar. Do you know that? Sonar was developed in World War II when the German U-boats were sinking, and so they come up with sonar, that little beep bounces off and now they have it that you can get it in your boat for fish. And it bounces a signal off, I guess, it hits the fish and bounces back up and shows you where they are. You know how that is, that you're fishing in the wrong spot where there ain't no fish? Now you just go out there and look at your radar screen or your sonar screen and boop, boom, boop, boom. there they are. What's that? Looks like a 30-foot alligator to me. I think it's time to go home and go to lunch. But now, sonar allows you to see what's underneath the surface. Keep that in mind. They have the best rods and reels. A real, really good fisherman will have not only his Johnson 50, 60, 89 horsepower, he'll have a little electric trolling motor on the back. And that's if he wants to move around. You start that big motor up, it's going to scare the fish. Just turn that little battery operated trolling motor and you can sneak in under the radar. They have things on those things that shows you the depth, shows you the water temperature. You can clearly get, without sticking your head in the water, you can clearly get a look at everything that's going on underneath the surface. And I'll tell you something else. They know, a really good fisherman, they know what time of day is best for whatever fish you're trying to catch. Sometimes they'll go fishing in the morning. Sometimes they'll go fishing in noon. Sometimes they'll go fishing in the evening. Sometimes you'll drive by places in the lake. You'll see all these lights in the middle of the night. Guys are night fishing. They'll even fish in the wintertime when it's frozen over and cut a hole in the ice and do ice fishing. My point is simply this. In other words, the better equipped they are and the better equipment they have, the better chance they have of getting a lot of fish. Now allow me to make the spiritual parallel. The better equipped you are with the Word of God and all the things that God has given you, the ability through the Holy Spirit of God to understand the people you're going after, the better chance you have of winning them to Christ. My spiritual boat will get me places where, you know, that the average person can't get. My sonar will give me a little radar detection of what's going on underneath the surface of their life. My depth and temperature indicators will give me, a, you know, a picture of where they're at spiritually, their temperature. Sometimes you'll fish here. Sometimes I'll fish on Sunday morning. Sometimes I'll fish on Thursday night. Fish. Chris Piscano and the boys, they, they go down and fish at Westport on Saturday night. You don't see him going down on Sunday morning. There's nobody down at Westport on Sunday morning. They're all in church. <laughs> A good fisherman knows what time of year, and this is why I don't believe in Christmas. Christ Christ wasn't born on December 25th. Come on. I don't believe in Easter. Easter is Ashtar, the God of fertility. I don't don't care. But I know that's two times of the year that people out there that have no understanding about the Bible are more sensitive to. So just like you'll go fishing at a certain month at a certain place, i use things in Christianity. That will give me a better shot of winning somebody to Christ. Third thing. Along with that, you don't always use the same lures or bait every time you fish uh, that you try to catch. I mean, the average tackle box will be, uh, it'll be a good-sized deal, and in there you'll have spinners, you'll have jigs, you'll have flies, you'll have some of those suckers that float on top that you kind of jerk a little bit as you bring them along, and they make a little noise on the water, and the fish say, excuse me man, i got to go up and eat that, and you catch them. Some of them are shiny through the water and they catch that. Some of them shimmy through the water and the movement they catch. Some look like worms. Some look like frogs. Some look like minnows. Some they call stink bait. Sometimes they fish with pieces of liver or cornmeal. If you're going after crappie, you don't always use the same lure, you go after bass. If you go after bass, you don't always use the same thing, you go after catfish. If you go after catfish, you don't always use what you go after trout with. If you go after trout, you don't always use what you, every fish will have something different and maybe they'll be the same sometimes, but in most cases, using the wrong bait that that fish is noted for, well, you'll never catch any fish. Now, the parallels, I do the same exact thing here. In my spiritual tackle box, I have softball. I have volleyball. I have Sunday morning. I have Thursday night. I have the street ministry. I have the jail ministry. I have the mission tonight. I have funerals. I have weddings. I have the Iron Man competition. We have camp. We have Bible conferences. All different lures to bring people here that the Holy Spirit of God can do in their life, but give them something that you know that they're attracted to. Now, the guy who puts a worm on his cane pole and sits by the river, he'll catch a fish every once in a while. But boy, you watch the guys around here. I mean, they catch some fish and they know what they're doing because they have not only the experience, but they have the equipment. Now, this to me is the failure of not only churches, but in reaching people uh, that they try to go back and do things like they did back in the 50s and the 60s that simply don't work anymore. But it's also the failure of missions today. Most missionaries are trying to catch wherever they're at in whatever country. They're trying to catch Mexicans, Africans, Chinese, and Europeans with American worms. And that's not how you do it. The first thing you have to do if you're going to reach your culture is understand and identify the needs of that culture. That is going through your tackle box and saying, I'm going after Americans. What does Americans need? America don't need food yet. They don't need clothes. Americans have every material possession they are. America is an insane asylum run by the inmates. America is broken lives, broken marriages, broken families, broken kids, broken wives, broken husbands that need somebody to put their life back together. And so when you fish for that, you have that in the back of your mind. Now, the fourth thing I find interesting here is that in this chapter you find And I don't know if you even saw this or not. You realize in all of chapter one, we're about to see now the first two things that Christ says. Up to this point, it's all been a narrative. Now in this chapter, in these verses, this is the first two times, the first thing, two things he says in John chapter one. Now I'd find that probably pretty instructive. Let's see if it is. In fact, he made these two statements that are crucial uh, to a man uh, uh, and his salvation. In verse 39, the first thing he says is, come and see. In verse 43, he says, after you come and see, follow me. Now, I think that's very instructive. Now, what will get people to come to church and see? you got to understand that most people today, and I don't really blame them for this, most people today have a very bad taste in their mouth about churches, especially Baptist churches. And I totally get it. I really do. So what will get people to come to church? What will get them to come and see what it's all about? It simply will be, not that we put the Baptist church up there, or Old Path Baptist Church, or we tell everybody we're Baptist. That, that'll put us in the same category. The thing that'll make this Baptist church different, that people want to come and see, will be the difference they see in you from the world. Most of them that, that I have talked to on the phone that come in to see me, they're having problems in their marriage. They're having problems in their families or they're having problems in their own life. And of course, they see the difference in your world that you don't have those problems. They see your family, your marriage, your own life. You see, it's one thing, and I'm not I'm not saying you shouldn't do this because it's a great tool. But let's not kid ourselves. It's one thing for to go out and pass out tracts. But it's another thing for your life to be a very gospel tract. I said it last week, the power of your example, not the example of your power. And through us, they will come and see. And if they're a prepared sinner that God has for them and we are the prepared servants and they find Christ and then after they come and see, we'll get them to follow him and you'll be part of that process too. The fifth thing. Now as I'm reading down through here, the, boy, when I read this, I, and I gotta be honest, I never really saw this until I got putting it together this week and boy, it just popped out, jumped out over my face. The next thing that pops out at me is in verse 40 and 41 and in verse 43 and 45. In verse 40 through 41, Andrew finds him first. And then he goes and tells his brother, Peter. In verse 43 and 45, Philip also finds him first and then goes and tells Nathaniel. Verse 41 says, he first findeth his own brother. Now, you know what I get from that? I get from that that when we get saved, the first thing we do before you go out and try to evangelize the world is tell your family and bring them to Christ first. Do you know how many pastors, evangelists, Christians try to evangelize the world when they can't even get their own family to come to church? I mean, we saw the example, you know, uh, in Acts chapter 16 last week with the Philippian jailer, his whole house. Back in Luke chapter 8, verse 39, you have the story of the demon possessed man. This guy was a psycho case. And he's out there doing all kinds of crazy stuff that the world does, and, and, and he's a picture of an unsaved man. And he finally finds Jesus. And it's a great lesson here. And he gets saved. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, I want to follow you and I want to do everything for you and I want to be your disciple. You know what Jesus said? He said, that's all good, but let me tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go back to your home first and tell them what you've done. You see, many times you have to start where you did the most damage. So you have here in the story where Andrew finds him and he goes and gets his brother and brings him to Christ and then... Philip finds him and he goes and brings Nathanael and he finds Christ. To me, I find that very instructive. Now, the sixth thing, verses 47 through 50. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, I saw thee was under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. Wow. What a great picture, Hebrews chapter 4, where the Word of God discerned the thoughts and intents of the heart long before you ever come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God sees a man's heart attitude long before he comes to Christ, before he comes to church because God's been preparing him. Verse 47, Christ makes a comment about his good character. He says, here's a guy that has no guile. Guile means no pretense. He's honest and open. Nathaniel says, excuse me, uh, (laughs) excuse me, sir, how do you know that? How do you know me? Jesus said, Philip, before I I I saw thee under the fig tree, oh, Hebrews 4, 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifested in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him which we have to do. You see, God sees deep down in our hearts as he's preparing that sinner. And God sees deep down in our hearts as he's preparing that servant. And then the Holy Spirit of God, yeah, he'll bring the two together. Doesn't stop there. He says, I saw thee under the fig tree. Well, we know from Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve that the fig tree is a picture of our own self-righteousness. You see, God saw us in our own self-righteousness long before we ever came to Him. And through the Holy Spirit of God, He'll send somebody in that person's life, a prepared sinner and a parent servant, and that person will look at that person, and that person will say, come and see. And because of the basis of where that person is and how God uses you, the next step will be, follow me. Then lastly, I think one of the greatest statements found in all of the Bible for all of us, verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus, bringing people to Jesus. How do you do that? Well, Romans fourteen seven says there's somebody always wa- watching your life. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. First Peter three fifteen says, "But sanctify the Lord God in your heart, prepared servant, and be ready always to give an answer to any man that asketh the reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear, prepared sinner. See how it works." Simply somebody seeing the difference in our lives and asking the reason of that hope that you have. That reason of your life, that reason of your family, that reason of, your, of God using your family as a gospel tract. Come and see. Follow me. You know, I said it earlier, passing out tracts is very important, and I surely don't want to take anything away from it, but let's not kid ourselves, many times we will leave tracts because our life is not the witness that it needs to be. And it's just easier to do that. You know, you and me as fishermen of men in the great sea of humanity, and of course, if you know anything about your Bible in Revelation 17:15, great bodies of water are like it to people. God's plan to reach the world, it it was never complicated. It was very simple. And that's actually very foolproof. The body of Christ has failed miserably in the commitment to reach the world in the Laodicean church period. We've forsaken Acts 1.8, Luke chapter 24, verse 7. And I often think about how God must feel. You know, and Please, I don't want to take anything away from the holidays because it's going to be a time of fun with families and a warm time of doing things and loving each other. And I get all that. And I wouldn't change that for anything in the world. But you know what? Sometimes I wonder how God must feel that we that are His bride, that are His people, just get so much wrong when it comes to Him. And I'm not suggesting we change anything, but what do you think he thinks about everybody, the whole world, getting excited about celebrating his birth when this was not even the time he was born? And when it comes to the time that he was born, nobody even says thank you. How do you think he feels about that? How would you feel about that? You know, uh, you, if you're a husband and wife and you forget your, your anniversary, if you're guys, most guys do that. Women usually don't. But most guys, some guys will do that. You know how bad your wife feels about it and how she's hurt. And, you know, you know the same old things. Well, I, you know, it you, you, happens in the morning and, you know, you just simply say, well, I had something planned for tonight. And I'm sorry. I just, and then you run out and make it happen. You know, up in God's book up there, he's got the very day you were saved. Well, that month you were saved, I don't know the exact date I was saved, but I know the month I was saved. I know the time, I know when it happened, and and yet we just go on with life and never even stop and thank God that it's our anniversary. That's why I do that here. Because between you and the Lord, that's your anniversary together. God says, "Yeah, well, he forgot again." Thank God, He doesn't forget. How God must feel? He thought for sure. I mean, I know He did. He thought for sure. After all that He did for us, we would do back for Him. And I know God is God, and I know His love is on. You know on comprehensible and all that stuff, but to me it's hard, and I know that God knows everything, but it's really hard for me to think that God would save me and love me the way he does fully knowing that the times of my heart that were indifferent toward that. And I, I just like to think that God never expected that. I I mean, the math is simple. If every believer, listen to me, if every believer from Christ to today would have just won one person to Christ a year, their whole life, and that one convert would do the same on and on and on, the whole world would have been won to Christ before Columbus ever discovered America. We almost got there in the Philadelphian church age when three-quarters of the world had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But you know how it works. When God moved, the devil moves to stop him in opposition. And hence, the Laodicean church period. Started around... Last part of the 1800s, 1900 for sure, and runs right up to where we're at today, and we'll go on. And we have lost, certainly, all that we have gained. And we, day by day, you know, I, I talk to God's people, and their life is so screwed up and messed up, and they say, one, one guy told me a couple of weeks ago, you know, my wife, my, my life is a losing battle every day. And I feel sorry for that, and I tried to help him and tell him I didn't need to be. But you know, that's true of Christianity on a whole, as far as winning people to Christ, it's a losing battle every day because God, people are so indifferent. I just finished the book of Colossians with my Bible study up in Lincoln. We meet every other Tuesday. Really a fun time. And I showed them how that, in the book of Colossians, you find the word of the town, Laodicea, five times. And the book of Colossians, in a practical sense, is a complete book that shows you the breakdown of the church today. It's only got four chapters in it. And in chapter one, it shows you what really happened. And then in chapter two, it shows you how it happened, that we got into the mess that we're in. I don't have time to get into it all this morning. But in chapter three and four, in relationship to What happened in chapter 1 and how it happened in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 then tell me, who's living in this period of time, my response to it. And how do I maintain an intimate spiritual relationship with Christ in a different Christian world? How do I win people to Christ in an indifferent world in an indifferent Christianity? And he starts out in chapter 3, verse 1 with a tremendous verse. He says, and this is what I am to do. He says, seek those things that are above and set your affections on them. Set your affections on things above. Boy, how many times has somebody used that as a verse for the day? How many times have I seen somebody put that out in a web page or something? You know, there's a verse that this is a great verse. And let me show you. Let me show you the hollowness of God's people today. Some guy will put out in this deal, set thy affections on things above. And everybody will say, amen, brother. Somebody will say, well, my favorite verse is set your affections on things above and not of this or Amen, sister. We'll get up and we'll say, you know what? Set your affections on things above. A preacher will preach on, you need to set your affections on things above. Let me ask you a question. Let me show you how hollow all of that is and how meaningly it is. Set your affections on things above, really? Is that your verse in your little web deal? Is that your verse for the day? Is that your verse that you put out? Let me ask you something. In the New Testament, there's 12 things that are new and above that you're supposed to set your affections on. What are they? See, there we are. We shoot our mouth off putting out the verse to pretend we're spiritual when you couldn't name the 12 things found in the Bible that you're supposed to set your affections on that are above that are new. I was born in the wrong century. You'll find nobody in this planet who has more disdain for Christianity and many, many Christians than you do to me. And if somebody says, Well, that's not the way it should be, let me tell you something. You ain't seen disdain till you get to the judgment seat of Christ. We're hollow, we're as phony as a $3 bill. We talk the talk. We put it out there. But there's no depth to us. Oh, preachers will get up and say, dear folks, set your affections on things above. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Oh, that was so wonderful. What are those 12 things that are new, that are above? You see, you can take the verse, but you can't do anything with it till you know what those 12 things are in the Bible phonies. Then in chapter four he starts out by saying set your affections on things above and ooh la la they say in France what those 12 things are. He says if you will do these 12 and set your affections on them above then he says in chapter four verse three in the middle of Laodicea God will give us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. That's the church age, salvation. And we, when we walk in wisdom to the unsaved world as a good equipped fisherman, Then he says in chapter 4, verse 5, God allows us to redeem the time that has been lost in Laodicea. And if there ever was a time in church history that God's people need to redeem the time, it's in this putrid church of Laodicea. Verse 6 says, ye speech, speech with grace, but seasoned with salt. That means that you cut people slack, but you're doctrinally pure. that you may know how to answer every man. You know why? Because you're an equipped fisherman. You have the boat. You have the radar. You have the sonar. You have the best fishing tackle. You have everything that you need to discern the temperature, of the spiritual temperature of who you're talking to. And through your faith and my faith and our life with Christ and our commitment, they'll want to come and see And then just Jesus said, follow me. You know, what a powerful lesson for all of us on bringing men to Christ. The Laodicean church age, the Laodicean Christianity is filled with programs, classes, conferences on soul winning. It's filled with people who have no clue. They have no more clue of how God works in bringing people to Christ than they do the 12 things they're supposed to set their affections on. And yet, they keep putting it out every week. And it means nothing. That's for me. I'll be there in a minute. All of us fall short of the key ingredient in Christianity today, which is the Holy Spirit of God. You know, today, we're on YouTube. Marvelous thing. We'll have people that are watching now. We'll have people that will watch this afternoon that are in different time zones. The people in England and Africa and those places, and our good friend in in the Netherlands. They're all they're all you know. They'll watch it later today. They're in the middle of the night or late at night, and and uh, they're you know it's a it's a different thing for them, but it's a marvelous thing. You know, you have TV, which can be used as a tremendous tool. I don't know if anybody paid attention or not, but Joel Osteen stole one of my jokes this morning. Did you catch that, Kelly? I'm the only one who ever said that. He is listening to what I'm saying. <laughs> I am the only guy who has ever said that. Thank you. We have TV, we have telecommunications that are unbelievable. You know, we have email, Facebook, texting, cell phones, social media. I can take my cell phone right now and send a message to a guy in Africa, Holland, England, and it'll be there in seconds. Around the world, we have the ability where it took Christopher Columbus six, seven months to go from Spain to the East Coast. You can do it in six, seven hours. We have the ability to bathe the world in God's truth. But the reality of it all is, with all of that, we are getting less done in reaching the world with all of that than they did in the book of Acts with none of that because the key ingredient they had is missing today, the leading of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives, in churches, in pastors, in God's people. Only one thing. We're either going to win people to Christ in our own power, or we're going to win them to Christ in God's power. It takes You and me, deciding for ourselves that we are going to allow God to prepare us. And just like learning your Bible or anything else, you might as well get your bullheadedness out of your way because God is not going to do it your way. You'll be by the river with a cane pole and a can of worms for the rest of your life. God wants to equip us. He wants to take us, prepare us, because right now, While we're sitting here, he's preparing somebody out there. And he wants to take you like he took Philip and put the two together. And when they ask you for the reason, you say, come and see what changed my life and where I went to get it changed. And when they see the change in you, they want the change in them. And come and see just translates itself into follow me. But it all starts with you and me and the Holy Spirit of God. Well, we'll hold up there.